everybody. Welcome to episode 28 of the Pink Bike Podcast. Today, we're going to be touching on a whole bunch of different topics, but the main talking point is going to be women's bikes. Do they make sense? Where does the future look like for them? And just kind of the state of women's bike bikes in general. Uh, Sarah Moore did some interviews with some people in the industry, and so we'll be getting to that in a little bit. First, we're going to start with the news, but before we do that, I got to introduce the people that are here. So we have Sarah Moore. Hey, Sarah. Hello. Did you ride on the weekend? I did like a two-hour ride on Sunday, and then it took me two hours to recover from the two-hour ride oh, with yeah. lots of lots hot, hot chocolate. Yeah, isn't that normal <laughs> for everybody? <laughs> it just started being normal, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that time of year. Yeah, and we've got James Murthwaite. Hey, James. Hey, Mike. Well done for resisting calling everyone pinkers this week. Yeah, that's we have to talk about that too because Mike Levy's not here. He was supposed to read, have a pretty. Uh, Horrible ad read, but he's out doing some field testing or testing fields, however you want to phrase it. So no Levy today, but uh, we also have Brian Park here. Hey, Brian. Hey, sir. Just closing the window. Very exciting. Hoodlums outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's the crew. Um, let's start off with the news. What do we have, James? Cool. Let's talk uh, new bikes as always then. Uh, and first up are the new Vitus Summit and Scarp bikes. Uh, Vitus are the in-house brand of Chain Reaction and Wiggle and generally offer pretty good value direct sale brakes. Um, so the Escarp is a 140mm trail bike and the Summit is 162mm enduro bike. Um, the two bikes have gone under a pretty decent amount of changes from their previous versions. Um, they now both share the same front triangle um, with the shock link then determining kind of their travel and suspension behavior um, that differentiates them. And that's something that we're seeing becoming more and more common now. Um, the bikes have also gone longer and slacker, um, but probably sit sort of in the middle of the park when it comes to geometry. Um, Kaz, you took a look through these. What stood out to you? Yeah, well, I've actually got the Escarp showed up for testing, so I have one ride on that. Um, yeah, I think they did a good job of kind of evolving the bikes, and the price points that they come in at are super impressive. I think the entry-level bike is $2,500. That's with a carbon front triangle and maybe Shimano Dior components. So, um, yeah, I think they're – I bet they'll do well with them just because of the price and the geometry is, like you said, modern. Uh, the weight's not super light. You know, there is – there's going to be some concessions when you're using the same frame for your longer travel enduro bike and your kind of lighter, uh, more trail all mountain bike. So I think the one that I have is maybe 32 pounds or so. So not super light for a carbon bike, but, do you, uh, do you think that it's, where's the sort of breaking point for, uh, alloy frame with nicer parts versus carbon frame with maybe heavier parts? Yeah, I'd be interested in like the prices, I don't know if they sell these frame only, but the prices aren't that much different than what you expect an alloy bike to cost. So I don't know, you know, it might be like a couple hundred dollars more you're paying for carbon. And I don't know if there's a benefit there because the weight is probably about the same. So um, I'm not really sure about that. I'll have to do some comparisons. Maybe I'll make oh, a spreadsheet. It sounds like we're going to have to make you uh, take the bike apart and weigh it for frame only. Lucky. Uh, maybe. I could do you that. can make your I unpaid intern do it. Mike, have Mike Levy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll promote him to unpaid intern. In yeah. two years, we'll figure out how much the frame weighs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but it'll be interesting. I'm excited to ride that bike. Seems like it could be a good kind of all-rounder for here. And there's also, um, you know, I think that 140, 150, 140, 160 is a pretty um, interesting market these days. There's a, a bunch of different takes on that style bike. There's another bike coming out that's going to fall right in there. I've ridden a couple this year that in the same category. So plenty of things to compare. So look for that in the next few months. 
Do you think there's any drawbacks to that kind of two front triangle, sorry, one front triangle, different models um, sort of design, which we've seen uh, quite I, a few people do? Yeah, I think there are, but a lot of times it's not going to be that noticeable. If you can make them both pretty close, you know, the person that rides one isn't going to really probably go ride the other bike and go back and forth. And so if you didn't know the existence of the other, then I think it should be fine. Um, but I think, I think you can lose some bottom bracket drop sometimes. Sometimes the seat angle can get steeper or slack or too slack. It just kind of depends if, if you can make the geometry work well enough for both that you're not making too big of a concession. But there are definitely concessions. Um, yeah. Your seat angle is connected to your head tube angle. So anytime you repurpose a bike for something else, one of those two things is going to be a compromise. Yeah, exactly. And your reach changes. So that is one thing. Sometimes you'll end up with a shorter travel bike with more reach and your longer travel bike with less reach which kind of works because that bike's wheelbase gets longer. So and all these numbers kind of get swirled around and, and things do change. If you look at the two charts, you can see what they did to make it work. So we'll see. Cool. We've got a couple of EMTBs to talk about as well, starting with the Orbea Rise. Um, this is part of that sort of lightweight style EMTB trend, um, similar in that respect to the Turbo Levo SL. Um, but this one weighs even less. It tips the scale at a claimed weight of 16.2 kilos or 35.6 pounds, which is... I guess not too far off what you'd expect for a 140mm 29er. Um, so the, these bikes, they have a bit of a smaller battery. The, the um, motor is a bit kind of less powerful as well. Um, although this one, you can put a battery um, like booster pack in your in your water bottle um, cage if you want a bit more range. Um, this is clearly another step in, in EMTVs becoming kind of more and more like normal bikes. Kaz, you've always said you're kind of in favor of the the kind of maybe the bigger, smashier ones. Does this kind of do anything to maybe convince you otherwise? Uh, not really for me and my riding style and why I would use an e-bike, but I do get the appeal. Like there is something to be said about, I mean, for even for the bigger, smashier bikes, if they can get lighter, that's going to be pretty cool. Uh, and this one actually uses the standard Shimano EP8 motor, but with some proprietary kind of software tweaks. So the way it delivers power and the way it works um, makes it a little bit different. So um, yeah, it seems pretty interesting. It does fall kind of in that, like you said, the um, specialized turbo um, Levo SL. So you're getting pretty light e-bikes. Just could be a good way for people to go longer than they more normally would without feeling like they're on a big, cumbersome, heavy bike. So even something simple like loading it onto your bike rack, you know, a, a 35, 36-pound bike, it's a lot easier to pick up than some of these 50-pound, you know, almost 60-pound behemoths that are out there. So I think it, I think this is the direction that things are going to go. And if your battery does die, I feel like at least you can pedal a 35 pound yeah, exactly. bike versus <laughs> yeah you're not as sad sorry because you think that this is the direction that e-bikes are gonna go it's small less travel and lighter or just lighter no i think lighter the weight game is still going to become a thing people are going to try to make lighter bikes um i don't necessarily think less travel like we're still going to have bigger travel e-bikes which in my mind makes the most sense but i do see people that want kind of a more trail style e-bike you know maybe not your guy that's going to be hucking off big things and riding the shuttle ass. It's one that just wants their, you know, it's like their after work hot lap bike that just feels pretty normal with a motor. So I just, man, like if, if you have the motor, why not bring a, why not pack an extra 20 mil? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's got 140 millimeters of travel. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, fair enough. It's, I guess it depends it where does, you ride. Yeah. Not everybody yeah. can just do like Pembridge and shuttle laps on their e-bike. Uh, yeah. Every day it might be a little bit, even I'm for just going to ride the, ride the paths at the trail center on my 200 mil e-bike nobody yeah yeah. Be people doing it. Yeah. I mean, yeah personally i just go like pedaling without a motor so that's that's fine but yeah so it's weird. cool to see the direction that they're going and that bike looks really good 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that too. There a lot. There's a lot of bikes coming out that don't look as horribly ugly as the original e-bikes did. They don't look like they just stuck a vacuum cleaner on it or something. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if people would have been less anti-e-bike if the first e-bikes had come out had just been like, oh yeah, we're, we look regular, really regular. Yeah. Next up then is Alutech's new e-bike. Um, you can't really talk about this bike without talking about how much it costs. Um, that's 16,000 euros. Uh, comes out about uh, 19,000 US dollars. Um, the reason for that is how they make it. It's a CNC'd frame, which is similar to how Pole or recently we talked about Act 5, where they um, machine the two parts and then join them together. Um, Alutech weld them as opposed to Pole's kind of bonding. Um, and... Yeah, they, they talk about how, well, they call it aerospace technology, but it, it kind of boils down to they machined it with um, a kind of a much smoother finish than the the pole um, or the Act 5. Um, and that's kind of part of why the cost is so much. Um, the advantage there apparently is to reduce weight. You can take some kind of superfluous material out. Although, I mean, having just talked about the Albea, this one, um, this one tips a scale at 21.15 kilos or 46 pounds. And that's 10 pounds heavier than the Obeya. So, um, yeah, it's kind of not saving that much. Pretty, weight, I pretty hefty. <laughs> yeah. I think Alutech's pretty good at uh, marketing and trolling. Like, I, I don't think they're planning on selling very many of these, but they got a news article up on all kinds of bike sites because of the price. Like, I mean, I remember last year they made that, basically they copied the Grim Donut and made an aluminum Grim Donut before we finished testing it. So, they're pretty good about that's getting their dope. name out there. That's such yeah, a no, good flex. They, he, I, he said <laughs> like, oh, I want to, you guys were taking too long to make the Grim Donut uh, part two. So I just wanted to make one for myself. Oh yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, awesome. I think, you know, this one worked too. Like, hey, look, we made his bike. It's $20,000. And then everybody clicked on it and everybody read about it. So it's uh, like 30,000 no Canadian dollars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, I don't think you'll see one. Uh, they're not going to sell a ton of them, but people now know the name Alutech that probably didn't before. So. It worked. I think they also did one of the first two Nyadano bikes before they yep. were being raced at World Cups. So yeah, yeah exactly. They're always doing stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Speaking of World Cups, um, we had Maribor, we had the double header, um, really cool format there. Um, but what we did see there was um potentially a new Shimano rear derailleur. Um Loris Verger won the men's race both times and on his bike was this derailleur. It's been seven years since Saint updated. Um and chances are, I guess this is an update to that, Kaz. Um, you spotted it. What What did you notice there? Yeah, um, it's definitely smaller, different than the current one. It, the way it mounts to the derailleur hanger is a little bit more robust looking. Overall, it looks kind of like a little tougher version of the current Saint um, and more than likely designed just for like a seven-speed cassette, like what most of the downhill racers are on. So um, yeah, Vergier and Minar had it. it it's definitely time for Saint to have an update. So it'll be mm-hmm. interesting to see what that looks like if they just kind of fully embrace and make it maybe just a downhill group set or if they have two versions, kind of like an Enduro Saint and a, a DH Saint. So we'll see where that goes. But what would be, what would be on your on your wish list, Cass? Uh, let's see. I would like there to be shorter cage derailleur for a wider range cassette somehow. <laughs> somehow, magic. But even if they still, even if they made that 45, um, like the 1045 cassette with a shorter cage derailleur. That'd be mm-hmm. cool. Because um, some of those options were supposed to be out. Like with XTR, you might be able to still get that. But lots of things have been said they were going to come out and they didn't. So either way, shorter cage derailleur somehow, even if you don't get the 51 tooth, I'm fine. Like a 45 would work. And then I mean, the brake, same brakes still do work really well, but maybe just, I don't know, tweak them a little bit. Like the modulation, if they could improve the modulation, I'm not sure how they do that. So 
And I'm sure there's some Saint Break fans out there that are screaming, don't touch them at all, because those have a pretty strong cult following. So mm-hmm. we'll see. Um, yeah, otherwise, it, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive that Saint has lasted this long and it doesn't really needed changes. You know, it's not like they were just ignoring it. it just, why change it if it's not broke, that kind of thing. I'm sure there was a, an aspect of there's probably not that many downhill groups being sold on OE or aftermarket compared to something like a new XT group. So, yeah, you know, you there's an argument to be made that that's why it took so long. But the other side is you're right. It it didn't need it. It, it hasn't needed major update in a long, long time. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we'll see when it comes out. I, I mean, if this is a, a sneak peek, you know, they obviously Shimano knows that people are going to see it. So we're looking at. I would imagine you'd see something next like April or so if I had to guess how they were planning to roll it out, but we'll see. To, to be clear, Shimano hasn't talked to us about this one yet. Yeah, no, we don't know anything about it, but just yeah. based on the way that things usually work with companies, when you see something out in the open like that, that means they're kind of not keeping as much a secret. So yeah, sometime next summer, I would hope, hopefully. Um, it's October and that means team rumors, um, despite it being the start of the season, which is, I guess, a bit weird, but that's 2020 for you. Um, the first big announcement came from Madison Saracen um, and the departure of Danny Hart after three seasons with them. It has to be said, it was a pretty unusual way to do it. You know, recently we've seen brands make a really big deal of these things. They put out a big press release and like maybe a nostalgic video and gushing quotes and all of that. Um, but this was just a footnote, kind of not much fanfare about it. Um, there was a bit of drama on Instagram as well. Um, seems that it kind of didn't end too well there unfortunately it's yeah it's a shame he looked really really good on that bike last year someone someone's definitely going to pick danny up and probably a big company and he'll still go fast on their bike too so and madison's team for next year is looking pretty good as well matt walker's two podiums already this year um they picked up vero widman who finished third in the women's racing last year so yeah i'm sure both will will come out of it okay that's for sure yeah um other team news, Tracy Hanna announced her uh, retirement after winning the World Cup overall last year. Um, she ends her career with five World Cup wins, um, 43 World Cup podiums from 61 races and six World Championships medals. Um, definitely kind of relentlessly consistent. My first memory of her is winning at that comeback race in Peter Maritzburg after working in a sand mine for two years. Um, and if you haven't done so, I'd recommend going back and watching the team videos from last year. Um, you can see like her battling mental demons and um, the kind of t- determination, the depth she had to dig to to uh, to win that overall title. Um, really kind of really well put together by the team that. Um, and it was great to see her win that overall title after 13 years of competing. Um, guys, do you have any kind of memories of, of Tracy racing? Two th- she podiumed at two thirds of the races she started. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's impressive. mental. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I always like Tracy just being like, she's so consistent and just like gritty kind of like she's always the one that like going for it and she'll take gnarly lines and just kind of like, yeah, she's just fighting to win. So it's always cool to see. Yeah. And it's cool to see that she was able to, yeah, get that overall after so many years of racing last year. And yeah, pretty emotional to see her take that win. So kind of a weird year to like end on, but, um, you know, once you're, once you're done, you can't just like go back and do a world cup downhill it's like yep i'm ready to retire and i've been planning this retirement and even if it's 2020 i'm gonna make that decision to retire yeah yeah Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what she does next kind of all these these kind of batch of world cuppers that are 
you know, nearing retirement age, which, you know, people are in their later 30s is retirement age in the downhill world. So it's, it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what's next for them and where they go. Yeah, because she kind of hinted at maybe doing other like video projects and um, yeah, not not doing World Cups, but still doing some other races and stuff. So I don't think it's the last we've seen of her, which is kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. She's going to do enduro she's, races? She's riding this weekend? Yeah. The last two World Cups of this weekend. Yeah. Cool. Well, I guess... She'll be, yeah, she'll be on the, uh, on the home team for the weekend then. Be nice to see her. Yeah. Round it off. Um, one last thing we, we, we can't, um, go without mentioning it has to be seven Ux raw 100. Um, this is the sixth in the series. Um, you know what to expect, but it's going to kind of blow your mind every time, right? Like constantly pushing the, pushing the boundaries and, um, I've got it penciled in for my video of the year. Um, what did you guys think? Yeah, it was ridiculous. I don't understand how he does. Like, I'll watch his videos and realize I can't do anything that he's doing at all. Like, because <laughs> he does so many tricks, you know, like maybe I could dead sail or some of the jumps, but he'll just do some crazy flippy spinny thing. That it, Yeah, it's amazing. I make it look so easy. Yeah. Yeah. And just, yeah, creative too, I think, which is kind of. Yeah. Is that not... manual to flat drop flip, back yeah. flip. Yeah. Like, how, I don't understand. <laughs> I think my favorite thing about watching those videos is that you watch them and you're like, holy shit, that was amazing. And then you make sure that you go watch it two or three more times to try and like parse out which things were like opposite or wrong footed or all the other like yeah. details. It's like what, what? Oh my God. You know, so each time you read or you watch through, you're like, notice a few more things like, like the flare whip thing he did or like the, um, the hip whip flip whip thing he did. Yeah, like in hindsight, it looked so much cooler than the first time I saw it too. It's like, oh, that is so wild how it just comes back around to him. That, yeah, yeah. that was the flare whip, hit whip, hip. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> name. Put that Do down. people really name these? <laughs> this, is, this, is why, this is why I'm not an announcer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh God, my brain broke. I don't know what that was. Yeah, they do yeah. need to start coming out with a version that has like the, the tricks, like someone could commentate over it and have the tricks. <laughs> kind of like how they have uh, like songs with lyrics underneath him you know like a music video with a lyric they need to do that yeah they need to do that with him so you can know what tricks he's doing i don't even know what some of these things are called (laughs) they're so quick too it's like yeah i can't imagine doing it live like the person who commentates it like joyride and stuff it's like (laughs) i gotta watch it and repeat like three times before i figured out what he's doing Uh he always tosses in one more bonus move he'll be like oh i'm just gonna do like a no foot can on this and then do it whatever yeah i don't know if it's video of the year i mean it's it's probably for me it's that or or the Tom Van Steenbergen one. Oh, that was pretty good. Which too. was so wild. There's like yeah. the the risk that Tom took and that, you know, he just went so big. Yeah. So hopefully all the guys, I think a bunch of the Rampage people are down in the desert now goofing off. So hopefully they can make some videos that are video of the year worthy. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah. Carson's down there. A few other guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that wraps up our news. Let's head into some questions. Start. The first question is from N. Weary. He says, We're starting to see more brands have bikes that have proportional dimensions that scale with bike size. Norco's Gravity Tune being an example. What do you guys think about scaling travel with bike size? For example, someone who is six foot four inches tall is 27% taller than someone who is five inches or five feet tall. Should this person be looking for a bike with 27% more travel? All other angles being the same, should the five foot person be on a 130 bike while the six foot person is on a 160 bike? The travel oh, on these bikes is proportionally the same when compared to their height. 
That feels like a word problem. <laughs> like if the train leaves the no, station, no, no. That <laughs> no, we're no, doing no. problem solving. It's like math in grade five or something. <laughs> and weary, I am so down with the direction you're thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm not. Always, no. I know Kaz is not, but Kaz is a hater. <laughs> I, uh, I, I think that it's awesome to be thinking about things proportionally. Um, I don't know if it makes if travel makes sense because. Um, taller people have longer levers in their arms and legs. So they've got, they've got bigger shocks in their arms and legs already. So I'm not, I don't know if, you know, like when you have, when you go to a a larger wheel size in the front, you're taking advantage of the fact that you, the bigger person can move that with their longer levers. But I don't know if that scales, if, if travel scales, because you already have more travel. Yeah, but if I'm like, if say I'm 5'11", I want a 160 bike, I don't want to go in a shop and be like, oh no, that bike only comes in 140 because of your height. Like, <laughs> and like I know what's, I know how much travel I want. I don't want to be told how much travel I want because of my height. Well, but that would, a lot of people say would, would say the same thing about wheel size uh, or like rear chain, like chainstay length or anything like that. Or, you know, I think everybody's going to want to have specific things for themselves as riders. I don't know if it's, it's not crazy to question, hey, you're a taller rider let's try and make all the attributes of a bike scale for you. It's not crazy to think about it that way. Yeah, I just don't think travel needs to be one of them. It'd be worse, though, if you walked into the shop and they were like, oh, you're 200 pounds, sorry, this is the only bike's travel that is going to work with you. Yeah. <laughs> At least, you know, height, you're maybe not as self-conscious about your height as somebody walking yeah. into a shop. And <laughs> <laughs> I could eat myself into a longer travel bike. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, diet. that's kind of what I did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah so I don't know. Brian can work on his his scaling of bikes for different heights. I do I'm like the stick with the twenty seven percent though. Like this guy's really precise. Yeah. I know. Yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> thought about it. So good. Hey, it's good to question things. So that's j- good. Just to be clear, like I'm very pro scaling. You know, chain stays to to reach numbers, etc. Um, but I don't I don't know if it, if travel would make sense. I don't know if if uh, Radic, so the founder of Pink Bike, who's six four probably. I don't know needs to have more travel on an XC bike for things to be the same. Like he's already got pretty long arms and legs. He can, he can absorb the bumps required to ride an XC terrain with his arms and legs more effectively than I can at five, seven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, but hopefully it never catches on. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. We got, um, from KCY 4130, Idea for future podcasts. You did the three most important bikes. How about the three worst bikes in history or components or inventions or roundup of some of the most absurd inventions like those zip-on tires, for example? That's a good well, one. Definitely we could dive in deep, but for now I bet off the top of our heads we could think of some things that aren't amazing. It can't be, it can't just be bad things because if it's just bad things, then it's all, it's just like, let me present to you the early 90s mountain biking. Like it was all bad. But, you know, in, to counterpart to the most important bikes, it should be like the things that held mountain biking back. Um, and I will, I'll go ahead and nominate, uh, URTs. I don't know what the first URT was, but, uh, the first one. Yeah. That was a suspension design that doesn't work well, especially if you stand up, it basically locks out. So not, it a does good. the opposite of suspension. It's like yeah. when you're sitting, it works. And when you're standing, it doesn't work. Yeah. So not ideal for mountain biking. No. Do we know what the first one was? Um, well, I think John Castellano with the Ibis might have been one of the early ones. There could have been something before that, though. I'm not quite sure. 
Yeah. But long that tie especially. Era. Yeah. Yeah, but that was a nice bike. That one. Well, yeah, it looked sweet. I wanted one so bad, even though I'm probably better that I didn't ride it. But I'd like to still try one. Don't meet your heroes, Kaz. I know. <laughs> uh, let's see. On my list, I mean, I'd kind of, yeah, I'd put some of those URT bikes on there. But um, I'd put some of the early cross-country forks just because they were so spindly and noodly. I just wonder if the sport could have been progressed a little quicker if the forks weren't twisting around every time you turned a corner. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brings, I mean, luckily things have evolved, you know, like quick releases. I bet they held the sport back. Like, oh, that's a good point. Axles breaking, you know, like all that stuff, just need to deal with broken parts and things that weren't strong enough for what you were doing on them. Like the inboard, uh, inboard, uh, bottom brackets. Mm-hmm. That was, a, I remember you had to plan everybody, every ride, somebody was going to break a bottom bracket spindle. Yeah. On square taper cranks. Yeah. Every yeah, ride. yeah. Square taper cranks and quick releases were like the time we were all just be breaking things. <laughs> like you'd break an axle and then, yeah, I remember just tra- cut tightening my quick release down so that it would hold the axle in place. Yeah, oh yeah. So that then I could ride out and then yeah, I'm glad that Sarah and James are like, we don't understand your pain at all. <laughs> yeah, quick release, what? Why did you guys even mountain bike though? It was so terrible. <laughs> uh, more modern, I I think plus tires was a, a little detour that the industry took. You guys talked about it in the things we were wrong about podcast, mm-hmm. but I wasn't there to talk shit. Yeah. Um you were saying that it was Scott bikes that really did the push early on, but there was a bunch of brands that were big proponents of plus tires. Yeah, it's one of those things that kind of caught on. I think a lot of brands were worried about being left out because mm-hmm. a lot of brands were left out when 29ers started catching on. It's like, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. We better just like hop on board. And all of a sudden that year it was like all the press camps were for plus bikes. And then there'd be 40 different flats on one ride. And like, what is happening? Why are we on these goofy tires? Like, they're not that they're Why not. Why can't fun. I turn? Yeah, I mean, bikes are fun. So you can have fun on all kinds of things but those tires it was just the flats you're just like back to getting tons and tons of flats where you, you know usually that doesn't happen that often so and like i'm i think we're all pretty pro brands trying things yeah um but that just that was a, a little detour that didn't work yeah exactly Kaz, what else you yeah got? what's like, i, I got some other stuff yeah i think some brakes like there definitely have been brakes that I, they didn't hold the bike back as well as they should have because they didn't stop <laughs> or they you know like <laughs> Uh, they held the rider back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Haze HFX9 brakes, those things were the worst back in the well, day. Especially after they, like, the purple Haze were so good. Haze yeah. were so good for a while early on and just took a nosedive. No, yeah, and obviously the Avid Juicies were not amazing. Um, and it, luckily a lot of these companies have, or Haze has for sure, and, and SRAM, like, their new stuff is really good. Uh, Shimano, I'm going to shout out their current XT brakes. They still annoy me. Like They do work, but they take a lot more bleeding and... They're just not as consistent when you, every time you grab the lever, a lot of times it's a different feel. So some people have good luck with them, but I've had more come through that I've had to futz around with than, than not. So still frustrated you, with Shimano's current brakes. You probably have a bigger sample size than most most people who buy a bike and those are the brakes they have and then they figure them out and then they work or they don't. You have to set up lots and lots of test bikes. Is, yeah, it, I think just, is it an outlay Shimano an outlier right now on brake setup? Like, do they just have a bleed, like a bleeding assembly line issue right now or what's going on? I'm not sure. It's hard to say. Cause sometimes like even with a perfect bleed, you still get that issue where you grab the lever and then it and grab it again. It just a different, it engages at a different point. So I'm not sure if the fluid isn't able to like recirculate fast enough, basically. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. And sometimes I'll get some and they're just perfect and they work fine. And I'm like, Oh, these are great. Like no, no issue. So, I'm still think, trying to figure out what's happening there, but it'd be nice well, if I didn't even have to figure that out. 
while we're while we're talking crap on Shimano, sorry, I am a Shimano fanboy, but dual control. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't amazing. <laughs> let's, let's, let's kick them off. Guys, the it was great. <laughs> I had people right, reach yeah. out to me ask after the things we were wrong about podcasts. And we were like, oh, oh, yeah. I used to love those too. So I wasn't alone, guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're very alone, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've also, yeah, since we're just, yeah. Oh, I'm going to mention, special mention, the WTB werewolf tires. <laughs> those were the worst tires. And wasn't yeah. that the tire where the where the marketing blurb was like it doesn't have traction so it's really predictable when it breaks free like a lot that's how but, it felt yeah i don't know like, <laughs> i mean we're definitely going back a while like luckily again wtb has good tires now it's a good meaty tread but that thing just had like paper thin sidewalls and tread that just didn't work anywhere so. i think also this was i was on instagram yesterday and tom marvin from bike radar had this amazing instagram story about his frustrations dealing with current bottom bracket and crank interface situations and just everything going wrong. And I think that's something that's currently holding the bike industry back right now is it, there are just so many it, lack of standards. <laughs> like it's just, it's a nightmare trying to change cranks or, uh, yeah, move things from bike to bike. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good list for now. Oh, maybe like, flat handlebars and bar ends those are things we didn't really need it's nice that there's riser bars with different options now and you don't have to have a flat bar and you don't have to run bar ends so those are good inventions i like that our quick little list actually really spiraled out of control turns out we're haters <laughs> yeah we can just keep going <laughs> no, i like things but some things annoy me too so <laughs> i think the trust fork was something i really wanted to love oh yeah yeah did not r.i.p trust yeah, yeah that fork was not amazing um yeah, well, that wraps that up now. That's definitely, there's plenty of fodder in there. We could do a whole nother podcast and just dive into things that worked and didn't work and all that. So, we'll so when going. we do a horrible complainy podcast, blame CKY4130. <laughs> yeah, KKY4130. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wonder what his uh, material of choice is. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Steel's real. Uh, yeah, well, that wraps that part up. I guess it's time to get into our, our main topic discussion, women's bikes. This kind of came up when we were talking about things we were wrong about. So, Sarah, you want to explain that a little bit further? Yeah, in our Things We Were Wrong About podcast, I said that, you know, six years ago uh, when I was working at Specialized Canada, I thought that the direction, like every single cycling brand was going to have women-specific bikes. Like, it seemed that, you know, more and more brands were getting women-specific bikes. Um, and it was kind of... Uh, it just seemed logical to me at the time that all the brands were going to have women-specific bikes. And that didn't happen. So I was very wrong. Uh, that's why we included it in that podcast. And uh, But I had a couple of women uh, from Kelly Emmett from Juliana Bicycles and uh, Brooke Hopper from Live that reached out to me after that podcast and said, if you guys do want to, I think we kind of threw the idea around there that we should do a podcast on it. And they said, um, yeah, they'd be interested in in chatting with us for a podcast. So we got back to them and yeah, I had a great talk with uh, Brooke from Liv, Kelly from Juliana, and then we included uh, Pivot, Ellery from Pivot as well. And uh, just to kind of have all the different categories there. I'm, uh, I'm very curious to listen to this interview, but just to set the table, um, the goal, you know, there's sort of two goals when everybody's talking about women's bikes. And one is for women to be able to buy a bike that fits them fairly closely out of the box and that works for their weight, height, riding style, style body type, etc. I think that's actually the goal for every cyclist, not just women. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other is um, to get more women on bikes. 
Um, and there, I think a lot of the discussion that we've had internally, and I'm assuming we're going to hear about um, from these ladies is what the best way is to go about that. There's, there's kind of a few different approaches. Yeah. So I guess the, you know, one way that brands go about trying to get more women into cycling is by having a women specific bike and women specific marketing. So that's what Liv does. And then uh, Juliana has a unisex design bike uh, with uh, women's touch points, like the suspension dune, um, grips, that kind of thing. And then they do women's marketing. And then uh, Pivot is like, we want more women in bikes as well. It's good for the industry, uh, but we have human specific design. Uh, so um, yeah, three totally different approaches, but all of them have the same goal, get more women uh, mountain biking. So. so the Pivot one is more, it's just like everybody's size is taken into account. They do, they do lighter shock tunes for smaller sizes and that kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they, they say they're very nerdy. <laughs> I believe that. I believe it. Yeah. <laughs> that correct like... it. I believe it. <laughs> so I'm here with Ellery Slater from Pivot. Hi, Ellery. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for being here. No, thanks for asking. Brooke Hopper from Live Cycling. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for being here as well. And Kelly Emmett from Juliana. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, yeah, let's start with you, Brooke. How did you get into mountain biking? Uh, pretty unassuming. I was in high school and we had a friend. I say we because I'm a twin, so everything is we. I have an identical twin who lives in Michigan, which is where I grew up and was in high school. And uh, yeah, he was really into riding of all sorts and kind of got all of our friend group into it. And I just sort of started uh, continuing to ride and in college uh, joined the outing club and got to go to cool places uh, and eventually moved to Utah for the mountain biking after college. Very cool. Um, And Ellery, you have owned a couple of bike shops in your past and kind of have a different uh, way that you got into biking. So um, I think it's super interesting if you want to share a little bit about that. Yeah, I... uh... You know, my first life, what I call my first life, first professional life had absolutely nothing to do with biking, but I'd always been a person that owned a bike. And so I'd like to say that I really feel there's a clear distinction between someone who owns a bike and someone who identifies as a cyclist or as a mountain biker. Um, I was in graduate school, I was getting ready for graduate school. And as a part of that process, I was a TA for a couple of professors. Um, And this was actually um, in the city of St. Louis at the time. And I was commuting, being a person that owns a bike, I was commuting to campus on what I lovingly refer to as my cult of poverty bike. Um, It was like a $50 bought it at a yard sale, like 26 inch hardtail with V brakes. Um, And I guess the, the profs I was working for saw me lock it up every day. And I mean, I was in my thirties, early thirties. And so one day I came in the office and they were like, have you ever ridden that thing like on single track? And I was like, no, no, like, should I? And they were like, oh yeah, you definitely should. So we'll, we'll invite you out to the state park where there was a trail network. And I was like, all right, cool. And then I went home and was like, oh, I, I better go see what this is about before I overcommit. And so I took my cult of poverty bike out to the state park that had a pretty legitimate trail network and uh, got completely hooked. Been a mountain biker ever since. I've been a mountain biker ever since. 
<laughs> and Kelly, um, you've done a ton of racing. You were raced for the Julianus Ram Pro Team on the Enduro World Series, also cross-country racing. Uh, but how did that all start for you? Um, well, actually, my brother was the first one in our family to get into mountain biking, and he was obsessed with it. He loved it. And, um, it kind of spread through the family. Um, my dad was kind of the next person in line that really took to it. And, um, I was actually the last of the family. <laughs> um, I was a pretty non-athletic kid. I, um, actually would get kicked out of gym class often for not working out <laughs> because I would be the one like sitting on the sidelines chatting with the boys as opposed to doing my workouts. So, um, you know, I, I would skip class and I was in this kind of in this bad trajectory. And um, I think my dad noticed that and he wanted to try to make an impact on my life. And he said, you know, you should really try try mountain biking. And I was like that. No, no, I'm, I don't do athletics, you know. <laughs> um, and he he kept kind of pushing me a little bit. And then I went out and I tried it and, um, I was terrible. I crashed a bunch, but I, I really enjoyed it a lot. And, um, it's, it's been fantastic being in the industry. Amazing. Yeah. To imagine yeah. that, you know, I've only known you recently. So to think of, you know, Kelly as a teenager being a rebel, it's like, what? Yeah. It's like a pro racer. <laughs> no, I think if I went, I always wonder like if I went back to a high school reunion and said like, yeah, I was a professional athlete at big, Everybody would be like, what? <laughs> Kelly Emmett? <laughs> she was the burnout kid, you know, smoking cigarettes. So. That's hilarious. Yeah. Um, and then from there, how did you end up working for Juliana? Um, and so as you had mentioned earlier, I was on the Juliana Saran Pro team. And um, I knew I was getting close to retirement. And um, I was like, I'm one of those people that always has to have something going on. So I knew if I quit cycling, I needed to transition into something. So I went to Katie Zafke, who was the brand manager of Juliana at the time. And I uh, was like, please, could I have a job? <laughs> I need to, I need to do something after racing. And um, she was awesome about it. And, um, you know, we, we talked about where I could fit in with the brand. And, um, you know, she gave me the opportunity to manage the Juliana SRAM Pro team, um, bring on some new riders, and also start up this Juliana ride out event that, um, I have, you know, continued to work on over the last few years. So, um, she gave me some projects and she was kind of like, all right, go for it and see what you can do. And, um, luckily it all turned out really well and it's been an awesome experience. I've been able to really, um, you know, as, when you transition from racing, it's it's not very easy and you don't really feel like you're very relevant or have anything to offer because all you really know is racing. So um, to be able to really apply all that to, um, you know, my next life was was just, you know, such a great way to transition. And um, I see, feel so fortunate. And um, this past year, I was able to move into a brand manager position as Katie has decided to step down. So, um Yeah. Came full circle. Yeah. He was kind of mentoring you and then now you're the brand manager for Juliana. Awesome. And Brooke, you're the marketing manager for Liv. So how did you kind of like get into that role in the cycling industry? Thanks, Sarah. I am the global marketing manager at Liv Cycling. And I was really stoked to come um, uh, work with this brand. And especially since um, it is a it is a brand that is purpose-driven, which has always been what drives me. Uh, I was on the marketing team at the North Face prior for about 10 years and did uh, consulting um, after that. And 
it's really exciting to be back in the bike industry. It feels like I've kind of come full circle after starting uh, as a, you know, ski bum, bike bum uh, in Utah after college. I love it. We've got a skiba, we've got a rebel smoker, Kelly. We've got <laughs> Ellery. Let let's get into your sorted hat now. <laughs> oh, it, and it is sorted too. Sorry. Um, so, uh, like, <clears throat> I wish I had a really good answer for how I got into the bike industry, but like, if truth be told, I think it just kept calling me. Um, when I left college, my like I said my first life had it literally absolutely nothing to do with cycling. I was a commodities trader. And in my early 30s, I went back to graduate school. And that was when the thing with the cult of poverty bike started happening. And then I just kept riding more and more. And then I started spending too much money on bikes, which helped me to get to know a bike shop in Boulder where I live. And, um, and then I became a consultant after graduate school. I had a really diverse set of clients um, as a small business development consultant and marketing consultant. One of those early clients was Sports Garage Cycling, a kind of a heritage mountain bike shop here in Boulder. But then I went on and spent most of my time working with clients like business development for a luxury print publication, all of it kind of focusing on business and marketing. And then like just about six years ago, um, Sports Garage came up for sale and the former employees called me and they were like, guess what, Elle? Bike shop's for sale and we pick you. And so, you know, I said to my husband, "Um, we're buying a bike shop. And he was like, I'm going to leave you. And I said, I'm still buying a bike shop. And um, we acquired a, and he didn't say that. I'm just kidding. But uh, <clears throat> we are still together. And we both left our respective real life jobs and started running a mountain bike shop together. So I literally came into it <clears throat> with a business background and a marketing background and not a huge cycling network. I loved riding my bike. I rode my bike all the time. I considered it my lifestyle. So did my husband. And so we were those people that were like, let's, and he had a business career as well. We were those people that were like, let's take the skills we've learned in business and apply it to something that we love. Um, So that's how I got into the cycling industry. That dealership, um, one of the brands on the roster at that dealership was Pivot. And that's how my relationship with Pivot started to grow. Awesome. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's like Kelly came from the background of racing and then you came from the background of, um, you know, a business uh, business yep. first. And it's kind yep. of interesting that you both ended up uh, working in marketing roles for in the bike industry. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and then also kind of have very different philosophies when it comes to uh, the bikes that are offered by the brands that, that you work for. Um, so I'd like to get into a little bit about... Um, those different philosophies from each of your brands. And if uh, we want to start with, who should we start with? Should we start with, uh, let's start with Kelly. Um, if okay. you want to like put the Juliana uh, brand philosophy kind of into a nutshell here, like what, how would you sum it up to somebody who, who doesn't know the brand at all? Uh, the Juliana philosophy is more about the women who ride our bikes and the, the experiences that they have and the stories that they create, then it's necessarily, you know, about women specific bikes. Um, you know, we believe that Juliana is really just a tool to help encourage women to experience the best of what mountain biking has to offer. So um, for us, you know, our, our main goal is that we really want to, you know, broaden the reach of our sport to anyone who identifies as a female so, um, you know, it's really just a platform to elevate and support women and make them, 
you know, generate content that feels relatable, but also then have a place that they feel comfortable to ask questions and learn and um, cultivate a community for these women. So it's, you know, that's what we try to really focus on at Juliana. Um, you know, on the product standpoint, we do, um, you know, we do change the bikes a little bit and um, we do that through like the female touch points. So we have uh, smaller diameter grips, we do a saddle and then also a lighter suspension tune. And um, uh, the lighter suspension tune is not necessarily only for lightweight riders. It's just more adjustability um, for lighter weight, lighter weight riders. So, um, you know, we're just basically saying that, you know, for a lower air pressure, the shock is still responsive and allows, um, to just kind of give this overall plush feel, uh, for those who run less air pressure in their shocks. So, um, you know, we feel like Santa Cruz does a really great job in creating a geometry. So we don't know that, you know, we don't really think it's necessary to change that, but, um, you know, we do different paint colors than what Santa Cruz does that we think might appeal to women. And we realize that it doesn't always appeal to all women, but um, it does to some. And um, all in all, you know, it's just really, you know, a banner for, for women to rally underneath and um, just help elevate each other in the end. Yeah. Uh, and Brooke, you guys kind of go a step uh, further with women's specific geometry. Um, do you want to touch on a little bit like how that philosophy came to be and why you guys think that's so important? At Live, our philosophy around women's bikes is that well, it's pretty simple. We champion women and prioritize women's needs by putting them first in everything we do. Uh, so, you know, we design and build our bikes from the ground up for women. Um, and we do that across uh, many different cycling disciplines. Uh, and we really do try to offer great bikes at, you know, both the recreational and performance uh, level. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting, we want women uh, to feel as comfortable and confident as possible on their bikes. Uh, we do that by using only women's data in the process of creating our geometry. But just like any other brand, you know, they offer their own secret recipe for bike geometry and design. You know, at, at Live, we're no different than that. It's just that we use only women's data and we exclude the um, data of men in the building of our bikes uh, geometry. Pivot kind of does you know, the opposite of, of what Liv does almost. Um, but we've talked yeah. before and you said, you know, it's in, it's in our business's interest to get more women on bicycles. Um, so what's, what's the pivot philosophy and how do you speak to, to women? The pivot philosophy is a human specific design philosophy. So basically to kind of say it in more colloquial terms, we believe that the bike doesn't have any idea what parts you have. We believe the bike only knows how tall you are or how much you weigh or what your reach is or what your inseam is. And so when we think about tailoring the design of a bike for the stature of a human being or a human's performance, we start to break it down to, uh, to, that, to that performance level. I mean, Pivot is, notor we're notoriously nerdy. And, and I and I can you know say that uh, with confidence that no one at Pivot's going to super disagree with me. Um, we're notoriously nerdy about like performance and engineering, and and so we try to to break things down to that engineering and performance level. And so to that end, um, what we would say to to women is how we educate you about what this bike does is the most important thing. And Pivot bikes are built one at a time, 
right? So instead of saying, okay, we're going to design, like I say, a mid-travel bike with particular geometry philosophy, and then we're going to scale that geometry philosophy from our extra small to our extra large, right? I'm, I'm giving a hypothetical. We would actually say in the world of human-specific design, what does an extra small rider need? And then we look at our extra small and say, what do we need to do in terms of the carbon layup or custom tubing or geometry considerations? And then we move up the line and we look at each bike individually and design those bikes, uh, again, basically one at a time. And the reason that we call it human-specific design, what we believe is, again, that the bike doesn't know in terms of the kinematics of the bike and the engineering of the bike and optimal ride performance, you know, you know, peek behind the pivot nerd curtain. And we think that the bike doesn't need to know what parts you have. So when we go to communicate that with women, our tone really is about helping educate women about what the bike's performance should be doing for them, right? So when we reach out to women, we back that up with the writer stories within our brand, as well as a sort of unisex, if you will, or gender neutral assumption that female riders want to learn about their bike's performance as much as male identifying riders. And that really does, I feel like, level the playing field and, and, and open opportunities. One of the things we do give consideration to is how do we educate the women that we talk to? So we really acknowledge that female identifying riders come to the table with different ways of learning about their bike, um, a different desire to speak technically or not speak technically, a desire for culture or maybe not a desire for culture. And so, again, the communication with potential pivot riders is very human specific. And we just try to come armed with as much information as possible about how the technical benefits of riding a pivot will change your ridership, whether you're female identifying or male identifying. And so if we back up to like when you're actually designing the bikes, I imagine there's focus groups that you work with. And um, I'm just wondering like how many women would be involved in the actual like design process for a pivot bicycle? So if you look across, not only let's say like the women that work, the women identifying uh, employees inside of Pivot, if you look at our roster of athletes, you have someone as petite as Olympian Chloe Woodruff, right? Who we take feedback from on the small sizes, as well as, you know, writing and uh, just the experience of riding on a variety of bikes. And Chloe rides far more bikes in our lineup during um, an experience in Phoenix where she's coming to ride bikes than just the bikes that she competes on. Um, and so if you, if you look across the spectrum of who our professional athletes are, um, it kind of, we, we tailor, I would say a lot of product development to obtain feedback from those women in the fields that they're in. Right. So, and particularly on the smaller end of the spectrum, um, Emily Siegenthaler on Pivot Factory Racing, she rides an extra small dual crown Phoenix 29. So um, we definitely put products in the field with female riders, sort of like in the wild across the entire rider spectrum. Equally, we have someone like Stephanie McDaniel down in Phoenix, who we will put out on medium and larges, you know, e-mountain bikes to get feedback. So mm -hmm. um, we really rely on what we call the, the pivot family uh, to, to ride products and, and to give feedback, whether that's in the field or down in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And Brooke, I imagine the testers that you work with are, are uniquely female, right? All, everyone that, that lives cycling would, would get to test the bikes would be female. Yeah. So really when you, 
look at live uh you know we're female founded and women led uh we are you know for women by women from our athletes to our designers our engineers um to you know the marketing uh folks like me but we work with women to create the bikes um that we want to ride so uh, uh, you know whether we're using um, data again from um, like women's body dimensions, or whether we're working with our athletes, we you know we support uh, Live Racing, which has uh, 17 um, professional uh, women riders uh, across m- many disciplines uh, around the globe, as well as our uh, CCC Live uh, World Tour team that we work with on the roadside. Um, you know we every part of the process, whether it's the designers, the engineers, the athletes, the, you know, when we do the suspension tuning, that's also done for women by women. So uh, yeah, we, we pretty much prioritize women's women in every stage of the process of um, thinking about our bikes, actually creating the bikes and then uh, actually bringing them to life. Um, And Kelly, I'm wondering for, Santa Cruz and Juliana, um, how does the process work for, for your brand? Yeah, we're always open to feedback from athletes. And so we do have a, a very, uh, a variety of women that are on our, you know, obviously racing on our bikes and ambassadors. So, um, we always take them into consideration when we are in the development process and, um, Josh Kistner, who is the product manager for Santa Cruz, you know, him and I continually work closely on, you know, figuring out the specs and um, the suspension tunes as well. I fortunately live in Colorado Springs where Rock Shocks is. So, um, and one of my good friends is also the product manager for Rear Shocks. So we have a lot of opportunities to test with each other and bounce ideas. And we're two very different riders. And so um, together, you know, we can like just get out and do a day of testing and give each other feedback and figure out like what is that best range um, for our women riders. So, um, you know, there's, I've been involved in a lot of it because I am still riding quite a bit, even though I'm not racing. And then also, you know, we're always bringing in feedback from our athletes as well. So, um, and just really trying to work with Josh as much as we can. Yeah. So we really have kind of three different approaches here. We've got the women's specific geometry and branding from Liv. We've got the women's branding from Juliana on unisex bikes. And then we have, uh, unisex branding and bikes from pivot. Um, so my question to you guys is, do you ever worry that it's like confusing for people getting into the industry, um, to have so many different, uh, ways of, or or different bikes that a woman could possibly want to purchase when she first gets into mountain biking? I'll start with you, Ellery. Um, I'm going to, take a risk and say that I think I, I kind of, I'm going to let Brooke and, and, and Kelly speak for themselves, but we all, we share that concern that it's confusing because I have, you know, speaking for myself as, as a, let's say as a female identifying rider and having been a dealer and now working with a manufacturer, I feel like I've had a really front row view of what it's like for women to try and gain entry into the sport. Right. So I literally stood on the floor of the shop and listened to the questions that they've asked, some of the concerns they've had when they've come in, as well as been at the brand level doing doing outreach. And I think the confusion when I speak for myself is is a very genuine concern. 
because I don't find anything invalid about Pivot's approach, nor do I find anything invalid about Juliana or Liv's approach, like nothing at all. Right. And yet the perception, I think, outside of the conversations that I'm fortunate enough to have with colleagues like Kelly and Brooke, the perception is, is that we're swinging elbows to have the quote unquote right way. Right. And that's very much, in my opinion, a misperception. And we all fight that misperception uh, that has been generated somewhere but certainly not within any dialogue. Like my brand doesn't sit around. I, I shouldn't say my brand. I mean like my desk within my brand, within the Pivot brand doesn't sit around and say, oh, well, this is the right way. We just know it's the way we're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Brooke, what do you say when somebody comes to you and says, oh, women's, women's specific bikes, that's that's stupid. I don't need that. Um, like I'm sure you get that, you know, relatively frequently and, uh, we definitely see it from the keyboard warriors and I'm sure, you know, it's hurtful (laughs) when you work for a brand that, um, you know, that's your, your philosophy. So I just wonder how you, how you deal with that. Well, uh, it, it is, we do hear that a lot and I think it's, it's, you know, I want to echo it, what Ellery said. Um, you're never going to hear me say that there is a bike that is right or wrong. I mean, I live in Ventura uh, by the ocean and there's these like four people, four person bikes that take up like the entire sidewalk. And it's like, as much as I want to hate them, if you look at the people on them, they all have these like shit eating grins all the time. So even those bikes, like, I don't think one bike is right or one bike is wrong. And I think that again, we want to have more choices for women. And we also, um, you know, like I said earlier, all bike brands have their own secret recipe for their geometry. Uh, what gets frustrating as a women's brand is why we have to constantly justify our existence uh, or say that, or we're constantly asked why, why do we do this? Why do we exist as a women's brand? And and to me, that gets really, really frustrating because I'm not going to say that every woman needs a woman's specific bike. At the end of the day, we just want to see you out on the trail. Uh, We hope that our bikes fit more women better or most women better. But I would never say about anyone that all women are the same. So again, it's about having more choices um, and more options for women. And as an industry, to what Ellery was saying is like, we need to look systemically at why are there so few women, not only riding bikes, but also working in the industry and how do we grow that pie? And maybe down the road sometime, there's this need to sort of elbow each other out. But for now, we all believe that more women in the sport is going to be better for all of us. And so what I would say to someone who asks me about Uh, why women, you know, what I would say to them is I would say, let's ride. You guys make rad bikes. We make rad bikes. Let's just go ride. At the end of the day, that's what it's about. And that's what Liv is about is offering more choices for women who want to ride. Well said. Um, And Kelly, um, do you, I remember when Juliana first came out, it was kind of like, why is this brand doing women's specific, uh, branding, but not have a women's specific bike. And, um, you know, I was kind of confused by that at the time. I think it was maybe when, when did 
Julianus Ram Pro team came out like six years ago. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, the video came out and I was like, this team seems awesome. Like you guys are rad, but I'm confused about the message. So what, what do you guys, um, like, what do you guys say to people who don't agree with what Juliana is doing? Yeah, I, I you know, I agree so much with Brooke and what Aleria said. You know, I think we're all here to get more women on bikes at the end of the day. I mean, I think we all want to see equality in the sport. You know, we want to see 50-50 and, um, you know, equal representation. And I, you know, I think that we aren't quite there just yet. So you need a women's brand to help elevate them, you know, as I had mentioned earlier. So it is really important that we have more representation. I think we all want to see, you know, women in the media more. And um, I, I think, you know, we're just taking the steps to do that. And Santa Cruz has worked really hard, you know, to try to get more women in the sport and find a way to do that and, um, you know, and normalize it. So it's not an unusual thing to see a woman out there, you know, side by side with the men. Um, We, you know, I think there's, yeah, there's definitely some more work to be done there. But, um, you know, I don't think there's a wrong way or a right way to make these bikes. I think you have to get out there, ride bikes, figure out what works for you and what resonates with you, what aligns with your values. I know that's really important to women. And so, um, you know, if that is a women's brand, awesome. If it's not, then, you know, that's okay too. There's other options out there. And um, I think, again, you know, Ellery touched on a really great point of educating women and helping them to make those decisions and, um, you know, to find out what is the right bike for them. And I hope, you know, additional education with retailers that we will be able to help them work with women and um, help them find the best, the best option. And, you know, I think more options are, you know, not a bad thing at all. And um, I think the only bad thing would be, you know, not addressing women at all in the industry. So, um, and I I see... I've been here for 20 years and I've seen a lot of great progression and women, women entering into the industry side. And, um, you know, I'm really hopeful. I've, I've seen a lot of great changes over the years and, um, you know, and, and I think it has, some of it has been attributed to women's brands and really standing up for women. And within like the larger Santa Cruz brand, like what does the support look like for Juliana? Like how, you know, front and center is, is the women's brand as a part of the, the overall brand. Yeah, of course. Like, you know, Santa Cruz has done a fantastic job in really um, incorporating Juliana in, you know, all avenues of the brand. And, um, you know, I, I hear there's a lot of guys that I work with and, and moms that, you know, are, excited to see their daughters like evolve and be a part of Juliana. And they think it's a really, you know, a great thing and necessary thing. So it's, it's really important to Santa Cruz. And, you know, that's why they started the brand in the first place, because they really just wanted to create an environment where women can get involved in the sport. And the only way to do that is to, you know, showcase female riders doing really cool and, you know, cool adventures and exciting things. So, you know, um, Santa Cruz is, yeah, they're very, they're very passionate about Juliana. And then I'm curious for, for Pivot, because obviously Juliana and Liv, all of their mm-hmm. marketing content is um, going to be, you know, featuring women. But do you have, when you're, you know, doing ad buys or posting on social media or your different marketing messages, do you have a way of, or, or do you target women specifically? Or how do you kind of, um, you know, grow that 
part of the pie as well. Uh, so specifically, I can tell you one thing we haven't done is we haven't specifically like gone out and let's say like on a paid social campaign, curate an audience that's like women only, right? Like we've, we've never done that. But if you watch our brand's trajectory, there have, there has been parity for female identifying and male identifying writers in almost every program since Pivot's inception, right? So if we have an XC program, we have equal representation. If we have a downhill program, we have you know, equal representation. Um, not Maybe not, not when Bernard first started the team, but certainly in the last five to six years. And even, even more subtly and beyond that, if you were to come say to a, like a, a bike launch event in Phoenix, there will always be some female identifying staff member of Pivot that goes and rides, even if there are no female identifying guests from media, right? If you look at videos on our YouTube, like all about bikes, which are basically just a panel discussion, deep dive into the nerd hole about a particular bike, nine times out of 10, there's a female identifying rider sitting at the table for that panel discussion. So there's a very, there's, there's an organicness about the inclusion of female identifying writers in everything that we do that we hope has pervaded our brand's growth since, you know, basically since the brand launched 12 years ago, 13 years ago. So do we need to do something more direct than that? Yes, we know we need to do something more direct than that. And you'll see in the coming year, more content created directly for women. I don't think we will reach out and target women specifically with that content in a way where we're trying to solicit their participation, but more that having that content available as a resource specifically for female identifying writers, we think is going to be very important. It's interesting. If you look at women on bikes, right? Women on bikes. It's very easy to validate that 50% of ridership is women on bikes. Okay. But when we look within that and say like, but women, women aren't a segment, women are a gender, right? So like road cycling is a segment, you know, mountain biking is a segment, but women aren't a segment. We're a gender. And so when you start to break down and say, well, how well are we doing in these like micro cultures within cycling? There's some numbers hidden within the numbers. And if you look at the core sport of mountain biking, as I think your listener, Sarah, would identify it, mm-hmm. we're talking about a 15% participation rate from women. Yeah. Which is pretty low. That's like one in nine. And I would challenge anybody, like dudes, girls, everyone listening, when you go out and ride, start counting. And I bet you'll come up with like one in nine. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point, uh, Ellery, like when you're out on the trails, uh, I, I think what I've really enjoyed, and I know Sarah has been a, a part of some of, is when we do do our launch events and we go to different parts of the world and we bring female editors together and we hire women as photographer, women photographers, uh, women guides, um, and we create this experience around all being for women by women. And it's interesting just to see the look on people's faces when you have you know, 10 women mountain bikers passing um, together. It's like, whoa, what's going on? It's like, you'd never really get that same reaction if it was 10 guys riding together. And so I think it's been a unique opportunity for us to really see what happens when you do bring that out to the trails and how the reaction is, is very much uh, one of like, wow, you don't see this very often. If we head into the topic of racing, which is something I wanted to touch on before we we finish here. Um, 
how do you how do you choose uh, the people that represent uh, your brand uh, on the international scene? If we want to start with uh, with Kelly, how does how does Juliana uh, choose their ambassadors, choose their racers, um, and rep- and people that that represent the brand? I mean, you're kind of, as you're out and about in different areas, you kind of get to learn who the races are. And I've been in the race scene for a long time. So I'm always at the races as well. So, you know, you get to kind of see who the riders are and, you know, do they really represent Juliana um, and what we believe. And so sometimes it's a, it's a conversation with those athletes and, and getting to know them a little bit better and see if they fit into, you know, what we're doing. So um, there's lots of different ways that we we find out. Yes. And do you prioritize people who are fast racers or people who are, um, more community builders, I guess would be uh, a question I'd have for you. Yeah, I think both. We really want to support that professional athlete so that they can continue to progress in their career. And then also we support ambassadors. I believe they all have a really great value in the sport. And I think it's important to, you know, touch on all those different points, you know, there are some women that are in racing and there's some that are not, you know, and how do we reach all those women? So, um, I don't think it, it, you know, it's hard. I think a lot of people want to put women, women into one little box. Like they all think that, you know, racing is the way to, you know, go after riding or, you know, it's like, they kind of want like one thing, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, that, what women want. And so I think it's very different and I think we need to appeal to all those different interests. And the question that everybody will want me to ask you is, are we going to see a female rider on the syndicate? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not sure about that. I, you know, Nina had an amazing race at the World Cup this past weekend, and I'm so excited for her. But, you know, I know Santa Cruz really wants to continue to support her as much as possible. So, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. But she's a tremendous athlete. Um, and for pivot, um, it seems like you guys focus a little bit more on the high end racers than the ambassadors. Is that correct? Is that kind of like when you're going through your roster of athletes, like how do you choose somebody to represent pivot? I think that's, I actually think that's a very fair assessment, right? Like I don't, I mean, we have, we get a lot of outreaches. I'm sure actually all of our brands do a lot of people reaching out saying, Hey, I'd like to be affiliated with your, with your brand. Um, We don't have right now what I would call a formal grassroots program. We do tend to focus on the higher levels of racing. And at that level, again, going kind of back to the organic nature, um, it has a very family oriented approach to the way that we deal not only with like employees within our brand, but with our athlete community as well. And so there's kind of this table stakes where like you could be the fastest person alive. And if you don't, if we don't get that family feel when we're hanging out with you, like you you probably won't be a pivot racer. Um, However, we do really empower and entrust our world cup athletes right now to recommend, right? So we don't necessarily curate Pivot Factory Racing in the way that you would expect a brand to curate Pivot Factory Racing and say, hey, this is the next female identifying rider on the roster. We really trust the team nature of those World Cup racers to kind of grow from within. Um, and that's actually where Morgan came from. I mean, like she came, she was like, instead of us presenting Pivot Factory Racing with like, hey, we want this person, Pivot Factory Racing came to us and said, we want Morgan, right? And so, and now here she is um, after having just 
I'm just going to say it. She just carried the boys to an EWS world uh, championship. Sorry, Bernard, you guys all did amazing. Um, but, uh, you know, with her French national championship, <laughs> uh, you know, we showed that we were putting as much, as much emphasis on the female identifying riders at the highest level of the sport. So we rely on them to create that team dynamic and, and to have that, uh, you know, basically that parity or that equal representation um, mm-hmm. at the ambassador level. You know, it's a really great question. We haven't put, I'll be honest, we haven't put an emphasis on saying like, we have to have X number of female identifying ambassadors and X number of, of male identifying ambassadors. Uh, and that's something that I think that you'll see us focus a little bit more on in the next come in the coming years. Uh, we've always had this human specific approach really permeates everything that we do. Right. And if it's natural fit for us to have parity in all of our events, that's usually how it works out. Mm-hmm. And what about, uh, Brooke, do you ever have any, um, like discussions with, with giant or, um, like how, how fair is the representation, I guess, for the the number of women that Liv can uh, support versus like the number of athletes that Giant can support worldwide? How do you juggle that? Yeah, well, um, that's a great question. It isn't a conversation that happens because we function as two very separate brands. Uh, so we have our own separate everything and up at the top um, somewhere it it does come together. And actually that's with Bonnie too, the founder of live and the chairperson for all of giant group. Uh, But our sports marketing, all of our marketing programs are completely different teams of uh, employees, um, people who uh, have different uh, strategies and tactics based on our brand goals for live. So um, we don't ever sit down and talk to giant about um, what their support is going to be versus ours. We do trust our brother brand very much so that if, you know, we hear of um, women that are uh, on the race scene, that would be a good rider to get behind, then we are all ears. Uh, But when we look at um, sort of, you know, at live, we have a lot of different tiers and structures for athletes and ambassadors, both kind of on the global and the national levels. Uh, I work on the global team, so I can't speak to the individual countries or sales companies and how they choose their ambassadors. They do have um, the ability to make those decisions uh, for their business. Um, But from a global perspective, we seek to provide opportunities for women where historically there have been less opportunities. And typically you'll find someone who's more purpose-driven and really drawn to the sisterhood. Why should we get more women in mountain biking? And I think each of you has some strong opinions on, you know, that it it would be beneficial for uh, your businesses, for the sport, for us as individuals to be able to have more women to ride with. Um, So why is it important for Pivot to get more women into into cycling? I look at how other outdoor adventure sports have much, much higher participation rates, right? So like if you think about female identifying individuals who may want to, let's say, put an element of adventure in their life, they can choose between a variety of different things, right? Backcountry skiing, trail running, backpacking, camping, climbing, and we can add to the list. And in every case, participation rates outpace mountain biking by double digits. And so when there's that glaring of a difference, it makes me ask, why is that, 
right? Like I used to really be involved in endurance running and I'm a skier. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and there's just a very different tone. And so I think why that matters is really about this sustainability of the sport and the communities that we operate in. You know, women are notoriously more cooperative, right? And we form groups and we're community advocates and we get behind causes and we create social outlets and social opportunities. And so I do think that it's short-sighted of the industry to say, well, we've grown with with a 15% or less female participation, right? So why should we increase that? But I think that there is there, there's a future trajectory for our sport that's about the sustainability of the sport that I think is very important to make sure that we envision a higher participation rate of female identifying riders. Yeah, we will see that a lot of times. Like, there's not a lot of women in, in mountain biking. Why are you guys trying to reach out to women? Women don't like mountain biking. Um, <laughs> and obviously, the four of us know that is not true. That's not uh, true. Lots of women <laughs> like mountain biking. And, you know, whenever you um, go out with somebody who's never mountain biked before, um, you know, their eyes light up and, you know, they, I guess, Kelly, how, how do you think we can get more women into the sport and how, how do we show people that it, that it matters to have more women in the sport? How do you, um, yeah. yeah, How do we get more women in it? Yeah. I mean, I think lowering the barriers to entry, you know, again, I think, you know, creating these environments where women can really thrive and, and enjoy the sport. And, um, you know, I think those are in community events and, you know, I think, you know, Sturdy Dirty created these women in all women enduros and, you know, they've made it this really fun environment for people to get out and try enduro racing. And it, you know, um, the courses maybe aren't as technical for their first time, or, you know, it's just a very fun atmosphere that a lot of people really enjoy. And I think, you know, um, you see it in running often, you know, that they have like these great participation races for those that want to challenge them themselves. And I think, you know, there was, it was all like, for a long time, I feel like the bike industry was like survival of the fittest, you know, if you could put your head down and like, you know, try to hang with the guys, then you made it, you're in the sport. And, you know, that doesn't really necessarily work for all women. And um, so I think for us, you know, it's like one, you know, showcasing women in the sport, and then also, um, you know, making lower barriers to entries. And um, that's, that's really important. And, you know, I think that, you know, hiring more women inside the industry, so you see people working in the industry. Um, so that's, I think, a, a good place for us to, to start. Mm-hmm. And Brooke, what do you say to people when they say um, that, you know, we don't need more women in mountain biking? Um, and ha- I mean, we know that's not true. So how do we get more women in, into biking? Well, first of all, I'd say that's quite a sad world if that's what they believe. Um <laughs> Really, I think that if uh, people find it offensive or wrong to try and get more women mountain biking, you know, I think that it's what I would say is you should really think about why you think that. And I don't know, maybe go to therapy because including more people uh, is not um, should never be the wrong thing to do. And I think our industry is one where women are still a very a small minority. And I think we should also address, you know, the 
other opportunity and the other issue is the lack of BIPOC uh, and you know communities of color being welcomed into the sport. So uh, really for anyone who doesn't want to grow the sport or to become more inclusive, I would say, yeah, you're probably just not a very good human being and should probably go talk to someone about that. <laughs> and what are the, the benefits to our industry, um, you know, bad human beings aside? <laughs> Um, well, you know, I, I I think there's a lot of benefit, a lot of benefit to um, growing uh, the industry, and you know, it has a lot about um, you know diversity of thought, diversity of of experience. By not reaching out to women, we lose out on um, often more passion or talent or you know, ideas, uh, just a greater perspective. And we as an industry will not be future proof if we're completely ignoring, you know, that half of the population. And what our industry is really missing out on is uh, being future proof and missing the opportunity to stay agile in the global market and missing the mark on meeting the needs of a large consumer segment. Actually, not a consumer segment, but a gender, uh, which uh, Ellery was very smart to point out. So uh, I, I think it's important that we engage with more people so they can see themselves or feel welcomed as part of our industry. And it's important for a lot of reasons. Business health of our industry is one of those. A great way to wrap it up. And yeah, thank you all for being here. All right. So we just listened to Ellery from Pivot, Kelly from Juliana, and Brooke from Live talking about their different takes on this topic. What'd you guys think? And it was interesting to me that uh, none of those women got into riding through industry marketing. None of them went to uh, a women's bike festival or saw an ad or watched a mountain bike movie and went, oh, mountain biking's for me. But so like, hopefully the work they're doing now changes that for the next generation of, of female cyclists, female mountain bikers. Did anything surprise you, Sarah, in, in what they were saying? I think what surprised me most was that they were, um, you know, they didn't say each other was wrong. Like, your your brand is not wrong. My brand is right, but your brand is not wrong. <laughs> but they, they were just like, if our approach is not doesn't work for you, that's fine. Go to one of these other brands. And obviously, they want to have the right approach for as many people as possible. But they were also pretty unapologetic about, like, if this doesn't work for you, like that's fine. Um, it does work for some people. So I think just keeping that in mind when we kind of look at different brands is like one branding, one brand's branding is not going to work for everybody. And that is the same for men or women. Well, I think that we, all of them had the same sort of goals that we outlined. Like they all want better bikes for everybody and they all want more women on bikes. So there's probably a bunch of different paths there. I don't know. For me, Ellery's approach really resonated to me, but I mean, obviously I'm not the target here. Like ultimately the question of what should women's bikes be like, who am I to say? Yeah. Joe, well, cause I mean, Ellery's approach is basically they don't make women's bikes and they, um, you know, they only, uh, only, or, or they just have a different approach and they, uh, have human specific bikes and then they do some of their marketing towards women, but it's not a specific amount. So, um, it's really clear that they spend a lot of time thinking about women and thinking about, about design for smaller people 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I like how, you know, Ellie says that the, the bike doesn't know what parts you have when you're on it, which is, it's true. You know, it's like if it, if there's the size range is available for different rider heights and, and the shock tune for different rider weights, that really should take care of that part. And then, and then, yeah, marketing efforts should be inclusive, you know, focused on men and women and everybody just to get them all on bikes. So it's, I see kind of two different things there. It's like the bike design is one aspect and then you have the marketing aspect is like another bit. And I don't know if you need to compromise your bike design to get more people to ride it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Although it is like easier for a brand like Liv and a brand like uh, Juliana to make sure that they are spending all of their marketing budget on uh, women's ads and like mm-hmm. actually, you know, showing women in their videos, showing them in their ads versus a brand like Pivot. It is a little bit more difficult to kind of get that. What's the right balance? Like, I think it's, it's worth um, talking about that marketing side because there's, it's got to be a really hard to s- decision to make for a lot of smaller brands especially brands that don't have the budgets of like a live giant or or specialized or these where um you know they have to make a choice between do we do a women's ad or a men's ad and we know that 90 percent of the people who currently buy this bike are men do we put a man or a woman in the ad like do we want to market to our current audience or do we want to speak to a future audience and that's a hard decision for a lot of brands to make so I, yeah, think <laughs> I don't when, think any brand would say market to the people that aren't following your brand already. You know, that, that doesn't sound like sound marketing advice. <laughs> well, it does. It, it is. If you want to grow that growing the tent is good for a lot of things, but I think that only becomes an option for brands that are like, we can do both. We're big, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Which so. is why we do see bigger brands like Specializer Tracker Giant be a little bit more adventurous in who they'll put in their ads that they put out. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons that, um, that, the live and Juliana approaches, um, there's something to be said for that because it kind of, it almost forces you to be like, yep, here's the marketing budget that's going straight to only women's stuff. Where, whereas it's very easy for some brands to be like, Oh, we're a little tight right now. Like, Oh yeah. Can we spend that extra, whatever? Can we buy that two page spread with, with Chloe on it? I mean, pivot, I, you actually do a good job of marketing the women's stuff. I'm not singling them out, but yeah, it, it becomes a lot easier if you're, if you're live or Juliana. But then it'd be interesting to take, because obviously those are, you know, Liv is, is part of Giant and then Juliana, part of Santa Cruz. It'd be interesting to look at a whole, like, is Santa Cruz's marketing budget, you know, this money dollars and then it has all men compared to how much the marketing budget Juliana goes to the women. Like, you're just kind of like split, splitting things up, but do you still get the same, like, the same split, you know? The same like, ratio, like, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> sure, Juliana is 100% towards women, but their budget only allows them to have, like, three ads a year where Santa Cruz does this, you know, like... I don't know. It's tricky. I, could, I mean, that's part of marketing and trying to figure out who your audience is and how to grow it and all that. So I would, I would love to see, like, I think it would almost be an important message to send to have a really fast woman on the syndicate. Yeah, for sure. Rather than like, uh, you know, the women's equivalent of the syndicate as its own thing. Like it would, to me, but again, I don't know, not the target audience. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, I want the women's downhill race field to grow obviously just to be the more competition the better and it's been good the last few years but yeah it'd be cool just to see it be not just the top seven riders it could be like a solid 20 like the anyone could take the win i would like it would be so nice if the women's downhill field was the way the women's cross-country field is right now Mm -hmm. it's so damn exciting yeah i mean that could be another I mean, we could have a topic of how we could just grow downhill racing in general. <laughs> it's, 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 a hard, it's a hard sport to get into if you wanted to. You know, you have to have a, a mountain for racing downhill. And lots of com- countries don't even have like a good kind of feeder program to get you to that World Cup level. It's super hard to get World Cup points. So. 
that's a whole different topic. So Yeah. But there is something to be said for, I think, people who are young girls who are starting to get into mountain biking now, they see all, they see the downhill is exciting. And I think if you see yourself or a representation of yourself in a sport, you're more likely to say, oh, I could do that. So who's to say that now we have a stronger women's downhill field that we won't have more, more and more girls taking up downhill riding. Yeah, exactly. And enduro too can help too. You know, yeah. enduro is more accessible. You don't need a big mountain. So you can have people riding kind of a more gravity oriented side of the sport. And then, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I, I like the direction things are going. It'll be interesting to see how these companies evolve their approaches. You know, like where's Juliana in five years, where's live and where's pivot and other companies too. Like, where do you go? What's next? I guess. All right. So let's move on to our comment gold. Just have a couple this week. We've got first one. Oh, KCY4130, he gets two shout outs this week. His comment says, uh, what most people don't realize is that this product was actually secretly funded by SRAM's marketing department because they were tired of Axis being the most ridiculous overpriced derailleur in existence. It is supposed to normalize drivetrains that cost thousands of dollars and make Axis look sensible in comparison. That was in reference to Rotor's 13 speed drivetrain. Um, it is funny. And we do like Axis drivetrains for the most part. There's some interesting stuff going on there. Um, but yeah, obviously, Rotor may raise the price even further by having a hydraulic drivetrain. So if you want to spend the most money possible at the moment, it looks like rotor is in the running for the most expensive drivetrain you can put on your bike. Uh, I'm sure we can drill some holes in it and charge more. Yeah, we can make it lighter. We'll get some of those like ceramic speed pulleys and stuff on it. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and Durogan, it says, being the point being the point of it is to entertain viewers. I think Mike Tyson fighting a bunch of 12-year-olds isn't a bad thing. I'd watch that for hours. So that was that was in reference to uh, Ben Wallace's getting to know uh, article on about the Pink Bike Academy. He uh, they just you know he's a world cupper. He's super fast. So they were saying like oh he's just going to destroy everybody. It's going to be like Mike Tyson fighting a bunch of twelve year olds. And Endurogan's point is that well I'd watch that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. It would be entertaining. <laughs> How many twelve year olds would beat Mike Tyson though? How many does it take? No. Uh... 30. Levy would know. Levy would. Yeah, I'm not, I've never calculated, <laughs> but I don't know if I'd watch that. I'd feel bad for some of the 12 year olds, at least in the beginning, until they started wearing them down. <laughs> yeah, like he would send them flying so far. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not my taste, but somebody, somebody would enjoy watching that. I'm sure. All right, and we'll wrap up the comments with Daquan. I, for one, look forward to seeing a 40 year old accountant wearing one of these wobbling their way down a blue trail on a Geometron, and that's in reference to the ride or die apparel launch video. So. Uh, I can picture that. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> um, <laughs> ride or die seems so hardcore, but then you see some guy like at a mellow trail, just kind of putzing around. So, be funny. <laughs> Not I like the, I like the, the rider don't movement. Uh, I, I do like that too. Yeah. Yeah. It seems very extreme, like ride or die. And then there's like ride the no don't. dig, don't ride. And then if you combine them, it gets confusing. <laughs> I don't know. I just like, you could ride or if you don't ride, it's fine. You don't have to. I like, <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. All right, that's a wrap on episode 28. If you got any comments, thoughts about the future of women's bikes, leave them for us in the comments below. Same with any questions you have. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 